Welcome to the Honeybee Inn, Cloud. Games We Grew Up With, a podcast that relies on nostalgia and a geeky sensibility. Each episode, we'll talk about one of the video games that left an impression on us as kids, put on some rose-tinted glasses, and reminisce about it. Then, replay the game and see how it's held up over the years. This episode, we'll be riding our motorcycles away from the soldier and talking about Final Fantasy VII The Remake for PlayStation 4. I'm Katie. And I'm Kyle. It's different! We just needed to talk about the stupid, weird plot ghosts. So, let's talk games. Let's go. So, as you'll notice, my co-host is, in fact, a producer. Hello, producer Kyle. Hello, host Katie. You can actually hear him, folks, (laughs) without me amping up the sound on my end to hear him. For better or for worse, we'll find out. So let's do this. Let's talk about Final Fantasy VII, the remake. Except it's not the remake. I think the official title is just Final Fantasy VII Remake. Yeah, there's no the. There's no the. It sounds wrong. It sounds wrong. Not as bad as Final Fantasy VII Remake Intergrade. Which is what the DLC is called. Yeah, they just kept adding words. Just more words. Okay, okay, we're starting this off. Let's get to the main segment, because we're still going to do this right. We're going to have a main segment talking about the game. So, Final Fantasy VII Remake came out for the PS4 in 2020. It was developed, of course, by Square Enix. The funny thing is, early announcements for this game started as early as the early 2000s, and it was actually planned for the PS2. Who knew that this was in development hell? Genuinely. And it's just, I think they never actually started. They kept saying they were going to, and they never really actually started. The first actual demo-ish game was premiered at one of the game festivals, I don't remember which one, in 2005, and that was a PS3 demo. So already missed a whole generation. They moved it to the PS3. And that was because I remember when the PS2 won, they basically said that they would have to drop too much content to remake it so they just didn't do it so then they went to the ps3 there was like a tech demo that became available and everyone flipped out and we're like we need this and then they're like jk we're working on final fantasy 13 and all of the sequels that came for final fantasy 13 so we're not working on it right now i feel like this is where square and blizzard just copied each other with starcraft ghost the same way here's this (laughs) tech demo of this first person starcraft ghost where it's this like hitman style thing everyone loves it Never mind, that doesn't exist. We're going to go make WoW. (laughs) J.K. Staff included producer, co-writer, and series creator Hironobu Sakaguchi. Also director and co-writer Yoshinori Kisate. And then character designer and co-writer Tetsuya Nomura. Nomura? I'm so sorry I'm butchering all these names. I'm bad at Japanese. I know Tetsuya Nomura. Nomura. It's one of those things of like, I recognize it written more than I've ever said it. Tetsuya Nomura. He's the main person who did Kingdom Hearts. So like he is the main like creative force behind Kingdom Hearts. And so that's how I know that name. I hear he also did Final Fantasy VII Remake. Ha ha ha. 
What's funny is, again, this was in development on and off since 2005 at minimum. The reason they finally decided to push forward and actually start actually working on the game is the main staff, those three guys, felt that if they waited much longer, they might not be alive. (laughs) Or they would be too old to develop a remake. Because you know what those dudes needed is a legacy. I know, right? But they didn't want to pass on the project. They're like, nah, new generation can't take this over. We have to do it ourselves. No one understands cloud strife the way we do. Exactly. Nomura was actually appointed director, and he didn't know until his name appeared on one of the like demos as director. He had no idea he was the official director of the game, which is also freaking hilarious to me. He just thought he was like he thought he was on there to contribute like information. He had no idea he was actually directing it. But that was another delay. Is when he found out they were doing that, he's like, "But I'm in the middle of doing Kingdom Hearts three. I can't right now." And so that was another delay to this game. It's just forever in a day for this game to come out. They finally entered full production in 2015. So that's 10 years after the first tech demo and 15 years after rumors that a remake was being created. Development hell is one way of putting it for sure. Development hell aside, I think there is something to be said for the fact that they took the time to at least do it right. You know, well, what we ended up with, I think, is vastly different than if we had seen a ps2 ps3 early ps4 title and i don't know if it would have been quite such a huge swing as we got by waiting absolutely and i really love the fact that when they were developing this game they didn't want to rely solely on nostalgia they're like we want more than just people reliving the original game and so they wanted to make sure that they adjusted social norms in the game to fit a modern sensibility which i find really interesting that they made this conscious effort they did fine they're like huh corporate greed is still a trend we see in the modern era and environmentalism is still a trend we see that we need to save our planet huh some of those overarching themes are still really applicable we had kind of hoped that some of these would have been fixed (laughs) in the last quarter century 20 years later and it's still relevant huh well that's fine but this really gave the opportunity to develop the game further and deeper than they had and we'll get into the plot points later but the fact that the first game only covers the escape from Midgar means we spend so much more time with these characters so much more time in Midgar and specifically Nomura really wanted to explore more parts of Midgar like he wanted to see the upper plate he wanted to get to know the citizens of Midgar in a way that we really didn't have an opportunity in the original game and so that's why there's such a focus in the remake of getting to know Midgar as a character itself beyond where we knew it in the original game. Music is something Chris and I obviously always talk about. We love us some good music and the music in the remake is great. It's mostly just remix, not remixes. That's all right. Re- they redid the original music. They upgraded Reimagining. it. Reimagining. Reimagined. So I, I think that while all that is true, one of the things that was called out in the Final Fantasy VII episode is that they made the conscious decision to just go back to doing the MIDI quality music. And this was almost fully orchestral this was you have all the space in the world to make all the quality of the files you want and so the songs are absolutely recognizable as being the same things but But they are there is such a different level to them and a depth and an emotion to them So what's really interesting, too, is absolutely. And part of that really, I think, is because there is one original song. The the theme uh, is called Hollow, and that is original for this game. But Nobuo came back 
to do the music. Now, he had done all the music through Final Fantasy VII. I believe he stays through Final Fantasy X. But then he left Square Enix, and hmm. he went to actually just go and compose music. He's like, I just want to be an orchestral like composer. I don't want to be doing video game music alone anymore. Like, he still loves it. Like, he does. they do concerts of his music and stuff. But he wanted to do more traditional-style orchestral music. And so he left Square Enix, and they actually brought him back for the remake. And he worked with someone else. I, I, I didn't write down the name, and so that's my bad. But he specifically, they're like, we weren't sure he was coming back. But he specifically came back for this to redo, basically, his music in the more orchestral style. Which, as we said, I think he always intended it to be. And then actually make this beautiful new theme that is about, he talks about Cloud. It's all about Cloud and how he's hollow and how there's so much missing from Cloud. And that's what the orchestral theme is supposed to be reminiscent of. And that's, I think, a big theme of this game overall is, yes, someone like producer Kyle can come in and play this game without ever having played the original and you can still get a great enjoyable experience of it but the depth that this game adds to players who know everything and anything about Final Fantasy 7 is is that's where the really interesting elements I think start coming in yeah I think they did a great job at giving both audiences a, a lot of sort of meaty things to sink their teeth into and like you said I had this was the first Final Fantasy I played played ever was the remake really okay and so like i was familiar with the idea of like a gun sword i was kind of i had heard the phrase buster sword and i had seen the little gamers comics about final fantasies like 11 and 14 the mmos that's basically it and so this was a really fascinating way to enter into it of i know this is a famous game i know this is an iconic game i don't know anything about it so let's see what this is like as opposed to you coming in with i know everything about about this game and i've played the, the freaking psp versions of this the the spin-offs of this thing and i know all of these characters and all their stories and i think we both got something very very different out of it yeah. while still being very meaningful which is the other reason i really want to producer kyle on this what i'm kind of saying random not rose episode the 40.75 I guess <laughs> for this episode because not only because I wanted someone else to talk to about it so it's not just me talking and yelling into the void which you know I do but because average I- Tuesday average Tuesday but I really wanted to bring in the fact that producer Kyle came in with such a clean slate to this game and how different that experience is I think it's fascinating and I I just wanted to kind of have that chance to explore it a little bit with you all but going back to the game itself before we get into our feelings about it that's that's the next segment folks critical response I say only it only got an 87 out of 100 on Metacritic it's still obviously a great score but it's much lower obviously than we were looking at for the original game that was averaging like 95s and People loved how it looked and they loved the update and they loved seeing the characters again and they loved being able to live in that world again. I think the biggest criticism that came from the game is that it felt too overfluffed is what I kept seeing. So the fact that this game ends at the Escape to Midgar, which generously speaking was probably eight hours into the original game and they expected around a minimum of 30 hours for this game. That's if, 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 you're, you go, if you're plowing through that's what doing I mean. If you skip almost every side plot, you could probably do it in 31, 32 hours. They felt like turning eight hours into 32 hours was a lot of extra things that some people felt wasn't necessary. It also felt very linear, which again makes sense because at this part of the original, it was a really linear part of the game. Final Fantasy VII was really linear, all things considered. Until disc three, basically. Yes. And I think in the modern era, we expect more of these games. We expect those more open play. And it's really funny because Final 
Final Fantasy games really have never been not linear. The more I've played these games, I'm like, everyone complains that they're linear, but they traditionally are linear. Like, yes, they'll have some open world elements, but these aren't like the newer RPGs coming out, like The Witcher or Horizon Horizon or Elder Scrolls. Like these aren't those kind of games where you can literally do anything and everything. There's always been these very structured storylines on almost all of these Final Fantasy games. And so it's really interesting that people are so critical that, oh, these games are so linear. That was something I heard about, you know, Final Fantasy 13, not this game, but like, again, a Final Fantasy game. And I remember thinking, I don't mind that it's linear. And I was like, why is so many people have a problem with that? And I'm like, oh, because they're comparing it to other modern games that aren't as linear but Final Fantasy has always been really linear so to me that's not as much of a criticism as I think a lot of people feel it to be yeah I think that you know having now gone and watched the playthroughs and done a handful of playthroughs of one through seven the joy of Final Fantasy games in the one through seven range I think is that you are playing through the book that they have written and getting to experience it and have the trials and tribulations of the dangers and the combat and the what's going wrong and and how is the story going to unfold it's not a murder mystery it's not a big sandbox to play in it is they have crafted what they find to be a beautiful story and it is your job to figure out how to survive your way through it and experience it and do all the things it's a different way of storytelling but it's something that square enix at least in this era did extremely well Absolutely. So it's funny, I always see that now as a criticism for a lot of modern games, and I don't find it to be a criticism. Again, it's still an 87 out of 100 on Metacritic. It's still really like everyone mostly loved this game. Let's not kid ourselves. Yeah, it's a B plus. I think the biggest problem was the other thing is people waited 15, 20 years for this game. We expected it to blow our minds. Yeah, I mean, it was the, the Duke Nukem Forever effect. It ended at the end of Midgar. We're like, really? Even though I knew that going into this game, I knew it was stopping at the end of like leaving Midgar. And I remember thinking, that's not even like a quarter of disc one. What? And I'm not wrong. Still not wrong. But I see why they did it and they wanted you to get to know it. I'm still questioning how they're going to fit into three games now because they they say it's going to be done in three games. We'll see. We'll see Square Enix watching you. But I think that's a good overall talk on the development. We're already getting into our feelings about these games. We're really I'm just bad. screwing the whole thing up. Producer Kyle's ruining everything. It's what I do. Let's get into the actual gameplay itself, the game itself. First, we're going to talk plot. I know, I keep saying, hey, it ends at the escape of Midgar, and that's not wrong. But we're going to go a little bit more into detail of the plot here, because again, instead of being eight hours long, this was at least 32 hours long. I believe my first playthrough was closer to 50-some hours. I've played 100-plus hours on this game. I think you and I both landed around the 50 to 60 hours to go through the first time for all intents and purposes. So we're talking 50, 60 hours of content. This is your warning. This will be heavy spoilers for this game and where it's going. We're going to go into theories. We're going to go into our thoughts of what is happening and develop. This is why Chris is not on this episode and why he probably won't listen to the entirety of this episode because we're going to spoil the heck out of this game, to put it in Chris's words. So if you have not played this game, please go play it. 
just go play it. It's a lot of fun. But if not, if you don't mind being spoiled, that's fine. But just know, this is heavy spoilers. And normally I don't care because almost all the games we play on this podcast are old as heck. Hence the whole theme of this podcast. But this game's only two years old. So I'm giving you a little bit of extra warning here. I'm spoiling the heck out of this game. And I think the addendum to that is that if if you've played through Final Fantasy VII, know it backwards and forwards, know everything about it, that doesn't matter in terms of getting spoiled. This is the movie adaptation of a book. This is a, a full-fledged AAA 2020 title inspired by the events of Final Fantasy VII from the original version. It is not the same game. I don't think we expected that initially, but that is exactly what it ended up being. And that's a spoiler in itself. It's not as straightforward as the original game, but I think most people know that at this point. So let's get into the actual plot of the remake. So if you listen to our previous episode, please go listen to our previous episodes on Final Fantasy VII. We have a lot to say between the Rose segment of 40.5, as well as our full episode of episode 40. Don't get me started on that numbering. Producer Carl's mad at me that I I did that. I kind of called it that I was going to get the non-game elements mixed up with the main game elements. And I did that in the main episode and didn't realize it till I started going through to get ready for the remake. Right off the bat, the start of the game, and I will put together a video on our YouTube channel at Games We Grew Up With on YouTube, comparing the first segment of the original game versus the first segment of the remake. They are very, very similar of the first reactor. They That is the one that they tried to do moment for moment as much as possible of those games, which was great. The one thing they were really missing was Cloud having forearms the size of Popeye's. (laughs) <laughs> and also Cloud was called Cloud the whole time. He never went by ex-soldier like he did in the original. In the remake, they just you pick his name and it's Cloud. Or no, you don't get to pick his name because there's voice acting. So everyone yeah. has names. Side note, there's voice acting for this entire game. Whole game. It wasn't always great. Sometimes it didn't sync. The voice acting was fine. The alignment of mouth movement to voice acting. That's a better way of putting it. But what I'm saying is in the Rose segment, I believe I called, I'm going to get things mixed up in my brain between the original game, the remake, and any of the other media I had consumed since. In the original game's plot summary, I said, Shinra helped blow up Reactor 1. Only in the remake. My bad, people. <laughs> in the original, we don't see that. It, it is just fully blamed on Jesse using too powerful an explosion as agent and the Mako reacting wrong. And so it blew up a stronger explosion that she expected. And that's why part of the town was destroyed. It's only in the remake that we see Shinra is like, we're going to actively blow up this reactor to make Avalanche look bad. More, more than that, the bomb that Jesse sets blows up and like, a couple pieces of metal fall off the like reactor and happens. literally nothing happens. Like it was almost a dud for all the time they spend breaking in and setting this bomb. It literally knocks the fascia plate off of the thing and everything's fine. And so they are the ones who ended up destroying it. And that is from only the remake. And that's, I think, an ongoing theme throughout the remake is Shinra is seen as much more conniving and much more involved at every step of knowing what's happening and manipulating the situation. And so that's what's really interesting is like, I remember thinking like, how did like three or four people break into a freaking reactor and blow it up? That just seems really unreasonable that four people could break into this reactor. Where are all the guards? Like you don't deal with nearly as many people as you should. Like what's going on? Five, you're correct. And the remake basically explains it as Shinra knew what was happening and let it happen because they were manipulating the public 
to basically turn against Avalanche. Like, yeah, we'll sacrifice a reactor to make the public hate Avalanche, which is not just news happening. Watched it live on yeah. their security cameras. They were monitoring how it was going in real time. Yeah. As they were sitting there going, yeah, we're pulling one over on them. We're better than them. We're, we got all the secret codes. Right. And they're literally watching them do it. And that's when the bomb doesn't do enough. The president of Shinra says, blow it. It's just so much. It's so evil. It's so much more evil than the original game. So I was wrong. That wasn't in the original. It's only in the remake. But that is an important detail. And that happens quite a bit throughout the remake is we see more of what's going on in Shinra in the remake than we do in the original. Beyond that, the other big thing about the original is because we have so much more time, because we're spending 50 hours instead of eight in Midgar, we get to know Midgar as a character itself. Like the city becomes a character, but we get to know the people of Midgar. We get to know things about Jesse. Not only that she's an avalanche but she was a former actress and she was from the upper plate and wedge loved cats and we meet johnny which i didn't even realize was in the original until i went back to after i played the remake and then when, when i was doing this recent playthrough of the original you meet johnny outside the honeybee inn and he wants to go in he's like one of a like a important character throughout the remake that yeah, you he's see a major character multiple times and he screws things up for you and you have to deal with him multiple times like and i was just like oh my god this isn't some rando they pulled out of nowhere he was in the original game and i just loved that we had that time to develop it's also fascinating and, and here are those elements that impact differently for a player who's played the game versus someone who'd never played the original going to the slums of sector seven which is where we spend a good chunk of time in the remake and getting to know the people of the slums and all i could think was oh god you're all gonna die oh god you're making me like these people who were going to die and it's horrifying and you're like why are you doing this square enix and i i think you had at least a little bit of knowledge that there was a problem i don't know how much did you know that sector 7 was going to be crushed oh absolutely not so i think it landed on us differently and it affected yeah. us both strongly but differently because you're sitting there the whole time with that buildup and that yeah. tension and i'm sitting there going these are lovely people and we're meeting <laughs> this town and now we were we're the merc that no one liked and now we're building all these relationships and friendships and people are happy with yeah. us and this is great what just happened so for me, the moment of, of when it happened, I think, stunned me and hit me emotionally a lot more, whereas you spent that entire time going, this is going to suck, this is going to suck, this oh, is going to suck. Oh, this is going to hurt. It's going to hurt. And that was really interesting. And not a bad way. I thought it was great that they did that. It felt awful, but I thought it was great we got to know these people. I think also things like they talk about the tragedy and trauma is much more of an open topic in this game because like cloud's ptsd is it's talked about in the original like he has those moments early on where he's like uh, okay i'm fine but like he's full-on seeing apparitions in the remake so i think yes that's true but when when you say his ptsd is way more apparent in this game i think it's also the way the character is voiced com yeah. brings that together i would say two-thirds of what cloud says in the first few chapters there's 18 chapters in the first three or four chapters two-thirds of what he says is <sighs> Yeah. Uh, mm. He like <laughs> he he's so withdrawn and like locked into himself and I'm just here for the money. I'm just doing this job. I'm only here for for the cash. I'm a mercenary blah blah. By the end we'll, you know, dive in a little bit more when we get there. He's a much more fully developed character but in the beginning he is a frozen block of ice to everybody. 
and it's funny you say that. And here's another difference is I think I agree. He's much more closed off to everyone at the beginning of the game. But I felt like he was so much more of a character in the remake, even early on, than he ever was in the early parts of the original. In the early parts of the original, he just did nothing. He was very not there. It was like, I'm a soul ex-soldier. I do this. I do this. I do this. And there are moments in the remake, even early on, where you can see him soften towards like Tifa. And you see those moments of like- Tifa. No, Tifa. You see those moments of like compassion in him, which I just don't feel like we ever saw in the original. And so he felt like more of a human in the remake than I think he did in the original part of the game. Now that worked for the game. To be fair, in the original, that works to the plot of like, oh, hey, he's been messed up in the brain for a while now and maybe that's why he wasn't actually acting like a normal human but like in this game he just felt more like personable and like a like a human he felt more authentic at times of like he seemed to genuinely care for Tifa and he cared for people around him more even if he was cold at times there were moments that he like shut down like he almost killed Johnny and was like you gotta do what you gotta do and Tifa was like no no, we're not murdering a like an innocent person. That's not okay. But like, but even having that reaction of that very cold reaction was different. I feel like than the original game, and I liked that about it. And I like that they developed that about him. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when you talk about you know Johnny being more developed and Cloud being more developed, and you talk about Sector Seven having and Midgar in general having a personality and having a character to it, I think the the being fully voiced helped that immensely because they dropped it in such subtle ways like running around town you would just hear like this little girl's voice like daddy are you sure we can't get a puppy yeah or like oh god i'm running late for work i i, I keep missing the bus because i'm i'm hanging out at at you know seventh heaven seventh i'm hanging out at seventh heaven you know whatever it might be like it, it's literally in the periphery surround sound as you're running by you'll hear just the constant flow of life and conversation in the place yeah and everyone's got their personality and everyone's got their feeling to it like it very much creates the feeling of a real community that's there yeah absolutely and, and it's things like we meet with shinra middle management at various times but they talk about like we believe in this instead of and that's kind of talking about the being a part of a call co- like a cog in the machine and not knowing what that machine is doing necessarily and believing in a cause without realizing what you might be a part of and it shows kind of some darkness there on both sides on both sides because that's the thing avalanche is very much more of a terrorist organization in the remake and more than that you find out that Barrett's branch is an extremist branch that the other branches have cut off so not only is there more than one branch which they don't really talk about the original it just seems to be them and in the remake they're like oh no this is a branch of a greater group throughout all of Midgar but they were considered extremists for what they did and I think that's really interesting that they're like it's almost condemning this branch of Avalanche more than we had before because they're like no they're they're doing things that are too far the other branches feel that they are going too far which is i think a really interesting concept because it should be discussed that they full-on murder people they're not innocent and yes they might be saving the planet but they're full-on murdering people to do it and that's the like is that the right thing to do yeah i mean they are absolutely eco-terrorists and we are conditioned to want to feel like they're doing the right thing because they are who we personify and tie fighter aside most people want to go into it feeling like they're doing 
the right thing. And it's presented very black and white from Barrett. Yeah. That this is the only way and but they're Cloud, killing the planet and Cloud they're doing all these things. calls him out for that, that it's not black and white. Like, I, again, I've been replaying the remake again before he had a chance to do that. And literally Cloud at one point says, that black and white world of yours must be really nice. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And, you know, we see Shinra as being the giant evil conglomerate mainly because, in the beginning, mainly because that's how they're presented to us. Later on, they drop a plate on an entire sector and kill uncountable numbers of people in order to further their PR agenda. And we yeah. see other pe- other things they're doing that are very evil. But early on, we are just told they're bad. Yeah, but, but the things that are, the, the worst things that are happening tend to be the things that Avalanche is doing. But, but then we see them interestingly enough we see people in in shinra who are arguing against it who said this is not okay who have a problems with that yeah like, even high level people reeves is someone who yeah. they show who's like this is not okay and then you see the the mayor of midgar who has a problem with it we need to focus more on the plot but <laughs> it, it is it's a really interesting dynamic and i'm glad they bring up this this gray world that they exist in in a way that again they didn't have a chance to really do properly in the original game it's at this point Again, we're still, sorry, we're still far back. We just blew up the first reactor in the plot. And that's when Cloud first encounters the plot ghosts, as I like to call them. They're officially called whispers. But they're these gray things that, like, force the characters to follow the plot of the original game. And so this is that element of you see more when you know what's supposed to be happening. And you're like, oh, they're trying to force what's supposed to happen. It's not as apparent early on, but the more and more we see these weird ghosty, they look like Dementors. Dementors from mm-hmm. Harry Potter. Fully, they look like Dementors from Harry Potter. And they force the plot to happen. So we first see them attacking Aerith. I don't know why they attack her early in the game. And I will call her Aerith here because that's what she's called in the game. But they're, I think, keeping her here so Cloud encounters her because that was really important is that he early encounters her right after the first reactor. But that's the first time we see them. They're going to keep coming up. But again, we spend a lot more time with the locals in the slum after this point. So after the first reactor blows up, we go and see Tifa back at 7th Heaven. And basically, we live in the Sector 7 slums for a while. We go and do silly mini missions of like errands, like let's go change out the filters and let's go find this little kid's cats and let's go kill these rat monsters that are infecting a small area but aren't really a big deal in the grand scheme of things. And again, it's a developing of the area and the world and getting to know the people in the world is the these little mini missions that were going on early in the game. We also get to know, again, the characters that we did know of, like Jesse and Biggs and Wedge, but we get to meet them more and understand them and have character to them beyond just the really superficial stuff we had met in the first game. One of the big plot points that they add here is, because Jesse talks about the fact that she's like, I must have used the wrong explosive to make that big explosion reactor one. This is something from the original game, but as we know in the remake, that wasn't her fault, but she still feels bad, so she has to go and sneak up to the top plate to steal some different explosive materials in the remake. So we find out not only is Jesse originally from the upper plate, but we go and meet her mom. That's where, as I mentioned the other episode, her mom makes the Midgar special, which is a pizza. Her dad is actually, you kind of find out why she's been radicalized is because her dad worked in one of the Mako power plants and got Mako poisoning as in currently in a coma. And so he's just kind of living in this coma in her mom's house and it's really kind of depressing and awful. And I think that's, they kind of allude to that's one of the reasons Jesse got radicalized is because of this but I bring this up because during this whole thing we'd have an early motorcycle minigame of course the motorcycle minigame was going to come up and we run into 
a soldier. A class three soldier. So a theory lower than what Cloud believed he was, which was a first class soldier. He's a third class soldier. His name is Roche. R-O-C-H-E. I think I'm saying that right. Is it Roche? I think so. And he's weird. Roche is weird. That is understatement of the year. He loves his motorcycle and sexualizes. Problematically everything so this way yeah so we fight roche and he does the creepy like we are meant to battle and you're like oh roche everything he says is very like sexual poetic and sexual and like he immediately identifies cloud as his new soulmate that he has to battle to the the end of time yeah so we run into roche so that's kind of fun i love again that we're meeting an active soldier this is the first active soldier we're meeting in the game which is fun so after this whole endeavor cloud isn't going to blow up reactor five like he is in the original game until the plot ghosts get involved and they say no jesse's injured you have to go so this is again we're seeing those plot ghosts getting involved and they basically attack until they get what they want and it's weird and you don't understand why you just know it's happening and attack just means literally shove you yeah they just kind of push you around until jesse fell to the ground and she's like my ankle and they're like okay bye and so we go to the reactor five to blow that up that's with tiffa this is the first time we're seeing her in action in that way she has been in the remake she's been kind of fighting the little monsters along with us so we're experienced with this but this is the first time she's going on like a real mission mission we go to reactor 5 we blow it up like we did in the original cloud still falls like he did in the original and ends up in the church with Eris again with who in the flowers Aerith. oh i'm so bad at this he falls into Aerith's flowers and we go on the same mission of she's like protect me from from the turks and so we get to see the turks again reno and rude are still amazing and we go and we run around with Aerith and do a lot of mini again this is where we get to explore the sector 5 slums and we get to meet all the people of sector 5 and see how Aerith interacts with them on a daily basis and how she works with them and stuff like that beyond just being the flower girl like we see her in a deeper personality and that's something I commented on I think on some of the streams and a little bit on the episodes I didn't like Aerith in the original it's pretty well documented I didn't like her because she was just a wafy character that didn't do much they really develop her much better in this game and instead turn jesse into that character oh god jesse was just thirsty for cloud so thirsty all the time but Aerith is like she's more developed in this game you see her beyond just wanting cloud as a boyfriend she you see her like these are the kids i help every day and we should help this and we should do this and she sees the complications with her mother her adoptive mother and she develops a friendship with tiffa and she just there's more to her than just like save me cloud and so i appreciate her more in these games and i actually don't hate her in the remake because she's actually a character and not a caricature yeah so still didn't want to get the date with her but no of course not tiffa's still best girl but speaking of when we're leaving we're going back to section seven we see her of course going to don cornejo 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 Corneo. And so we follow after and we watch Cloud become the prettiest of ladies. And we have to do a bunch of mini tasks to make Cloud the prettiest of ladies. We didn't talk about this in the original episode, but the freaking squatting game was annoying in the original. It's worse in this game because you not only have to do squats, then you have to do pull-ups and it's hard. 
It's actually it is really hard. Extremely timing based. It's a very timing based mini game because this game brings in mini games the same way the original did. Besides just the motorcycle one we've already done, then we have squats and pull ups, and then the greatest mini game of all time. There's a it's rhythm, amazing. the rhythm timing game of cloud dancing. And if you've never seen this and you don't care about being spoiled at this point, oh my God, look up Final Fantasy VII Remake Cloud Dance it's with glorious. Andrea. It's glorious. And Cloud dances to a rhythm dancing game. And it's actually a really interesting rhythm dancing mechanic because it's not like DDR or anything where you just see the button and you press it. They're flying around the screen and it's not in the set rhythm. And it's it's very three dimensional. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because they have a very choreographed, almost FMV of the dance taking place. And while they are doing this 3D camera work around the dance with cuts and edits and things mm -hmm. like that, your targets show up in 3D space. Other, the sort of symbols that you have to match them with are coming from a different 3D space at a different angle. And there's a lot going on that you have to match up. Absolutely. It's complicated, but it's glorious. Please go look it up. It's so much fun. We both just stopped and stared the first time oh, and realized so we, we had to go back and actually play it but it's so good so good so cloud becomes a pretty lady just like he does in the original game so you become the prettiest lady so you get picked for your one night with don corneo that all goes down the same way very or very similar and you go on we find out the plate's gonna drop on sector seven and this is where my heart dropped because i was like oh god all those people we've met are probably gonna die and kind of. So the good news is we get back in enough time that we help evacuate Sector 7 to a certain extent. People still absolutely die. But all the named characters we know make it out. Which is nice. Except we do see Jesse, Biggs, and Wedge on the tower the same way we saw them die in the original. That seems to still happen. It's sad. The tower collapses and we're like, oh, that's awful. Our bad. We see some of the people who have survived. Like I said, like the, there's a lot of named characters we've met along the way who have survived the plate collapsing because they were able to evacuate and that's good. We notice because why are these monsters keep appearing in the Sector 7 slums? Well, it turns out there's a whole new segment of the game where there is a secret lab hidden under Sector Sector 7 from Shinra that's developing these monsters that are Mako poisoned basically and so we go and explore this whole lab to stop the monsters from you know eating everyone and while we're in that lab hey Wedge is still alive which is kind of amazing Wedge didn't end up dying so we take him out of that sector we do kind of save it there's a lot of stuff that's going on there basically you find out Shinra's doing a lot of experiments with Mako which we knew from the original game again we know Hojo and that whole contingent was doing this Hojo absolutely but this was more confirmation. So it was really interesting that they did this. We go through. Finally, we see we're like, we have to go save Aerith. Aerith. Mm. We have to go save Aerith because we know that at this point she's been captured by Shinra. We do the traditional go to the Shinra headquarters, go save her. If you want the elixir, you go up all the stairs. So all stairs. of the stairs. So many stairs. And so we go and we save her. We meet Red 13. I don't remember entirely if he ever joins your party fully, but he definitely contributes at various times. And there's actually, again, in Shinra headquarters, there's a bigger elements of we're exploring Hojo's lab in Shinra headquarters. So there's these whole elements of like, he's making us fight our way out to prove ourselves. And there's this whole extra elements where your party gets split. So you have to be constantly shifting things back and forth between the different party members. And so it's really interesting 
dynamic that they added there. While we're in Shinra headquarters, we again meet the mayor of Midgar, and we find out again, not only is he not a bad guy working with Shinra and everything like that, but he's actually part of Avalanche. And they basically explain he's the reason that they got as far as they did within the Shinra headquarters, which again, I love that the remake tried to explain away some of the plot holes of the original. Is They're like, no, he was part of Avalanche all along. He knew you were coming, and that's why he covered up for you. And that's great. I love that Mayor Domino did this. We also find out Wedge is helping out in the Shinra headquarters this whole time because, again, he's part of Avalanche, so he's helping and doing all this. Go through the whole thing. Sefi, of course, is once again in Shinra headquarters. Sefi is taking the Genova parts he finds and fully murderizes President Shinra as he does in the original. Things change again because he kills Barrett. No. Which genuinely shocked me. Because I was like, wait, what? He just killed Barrett. And the plot ghosts make their appearance again and Barrett comes back to life. I mean, of course, why not? That's the interesting thing of the plot ghosts aren't bad guys at this point. They're trying to keep you on the original plot and Barrett doesn't die in the original and so he can't die here. And that was like, Ooh, interesting. This is weird. Where are they going with this? And clearly they are a lot more powerful than just pointing you in the right direction. Exactly. But we do the classic. We fight Rufus again because he's taking over for his father. Everyone tries to escape the headquarters. We get the motorcycle scene again. We're back on our motorcycle classic. Fight, escape on the motorcycle. Wedge might have died again because we see like part of the headquarters collapsing and Wedge might have died again. So he survived Sector 7 but might have died in Shinra. Unconfirmed one way or another. I hope he's not dead because he was adorable. He was. And his cats were too. And his cats were amazing. Finally, once we're out of the building, we encounter Sephiroth or... Again, very similar to the original game, they're Sephiroth kind of taking over the bodies of the former soldiers because we see the hooded figures. Actually, one of the hooded figures lives right next door to Cloud and Tifa earlier in the game. And he asks Cloud to join him and Cloud says no. And specifically, he asks Cloud to join him to defy fate, which again seems to become a theme of this whole game because Cloud says no. But actually, Cloud is saying yes because then we go and fight the Whispers. In fact, we fight what is called the Wisp Harbinger, which is the enemy like formed by all of the Whispers combining into this massive thing. And when we beat it, we've kind of beaten fate and it's implied we are no longer bound by fate, which means they might not be involved in the next two games. We won't know until the next games, but that's kind of an interesting element since that was one of the biggest new additions to this game. But more specifically, at this point, we go to a cutscene. And we go to the scene that's actually almost taken directly from Crisis Core, the game, of Zack fighting the Shinra soldiers with Cloud, who's in comatose state at this point, being like dying. And we see this a little bit in the original. And this is where Zack dies in the original. And he doesn't die. And we see him live and survive this fight and grab Cloud and walk into Midgar. And it's like, what? Zack isn't dead now that we've beaten fate and fate is changed meaning that things people's fates might change so maybe Eris is gonna live in the long run on this one except not because there's now implications in the way people look at it is it might be alternate timelines that are merging together so that doesn't mean she'll live but it doesn't mean she'll die it's 
really complicated because how because Zack being alive all of a sudden doesn't explain how does Cloud have his sword then? Cloud's entire origin story. It, it's just questions because because he shows up. So the DLC that came out for the game is called Integrate, as we mentioned. Yuffie's the lead of Integrate. She goes to Midgar, which again, this is all new. This never happened in the original game, of course, that we know of at least. And she's looking for the ultimate materia. She's running around, blah, blah, blah. But at one point during Integrate, we see Zack entering Eris's church. So he's looking for her. And so there's so many questions, so many questions about what the ending means and the implications of, I'm guessing they don't want to kill Eris because again, that was so controversial at the time. We talked about how they did decide very early on to kill her off, but there were a lot of questions of if how long she was going to last in the game. Maybe they're changing it. Who knows? And is Zack still alive? And is he alive in this universe versus an alternate universe? We don't know. There are questions. But this was a really hard moment for me when producer Kyle got to the end of the game and he sees this person who says his name is Zack. He doesn't know who Zack is. Just beat a bunch of Shinra goons and walk into Midgar. And he's like, okay. And I was like, I, hmm, hmm, I can't tell you why this is such a big deal because you don't understand that he's dead and he shouldn't be alive. But that, that, and this is why Cloud is the way he, and I couldn't say any of that to Bridget Kyle because I was trying to be a good person and not spoil the original game for him, but I was dying on the inside. <laughs> dying. So that's the plot of the remake. Yeah, and I think that there's, as per usual, but this in particular with the size and scope of the game, there's so much that's not even addressed here yeah you know wall market is a huge section with mm-hmm. tons of different ways that you can go through it don corneo is maybe the creepiest rapiest character i've seen in a game in a long time yeah and we meet so many more characters like you men- yeah. mentioned andrea but we also meet the dressmaker which i forget her name and madam m chocobo billy who, yeah, Madam M and Chocobo. Chocobo Sam. Sam. It was a Chocobo something. And like, these are characters that we meet and they have personalities and lives and stuff. We just, we don't have time to get into the details here, but there's so much more to this world. So now we've gone over the basic plot. Let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of the remake. It's the more modern style where you just kind of jump into combat. You don't have to jump into a separate screen or anything like that. You do have your basic attack button, but then there are abilities on top of that that are based on ATB. So there is still ATB in this game. It's just used very differently in that you have ATB bars. There's one and two that you can build up. So some skills take two bars, some skills take one. So these are abilities that innately come in a character than spells that can be part or using items. The abilities are very reminiscent. Most of them are versions of the character's limit breaks from the previous game. So like Braver is a ability that Cloud has on his very first weapon that he uses, and it's just an ability. It's not his limit break. Limit breaks are still a thing in this game. So Cross Slash still shows up as Cloud's very first limit break, but it's it, they're just a little bit different, and they build up the exact same way, but ATB... And abilities show some of those less com or more often used, I guess, limit breaks. I don't know. They divide them up somehow that some of the limit breaks are abilities and some are just normal limit breaks. So it's really interesting that that's kind of the dynamic there. Different weapons give you different abilities and then you can keep that ability as long as you use it enough times per weapon. It's just kind of the weapons are a lot more developed in this game. So there aren't nearly as many weapons, but each weapon you can actually upgrade, which is a element that was in, I think, starting 13, possibly earlier, but definitely starting 13 that you had this 
idea of almost like ability trees attached to like the characters. In this case, the in the game, they're attached to the weapons specifically. So each weapon has basically its own ability tree. And so you can get points for every level. And when you do, you add like plus attack, plus a materia slot to this weapon, everything like that. So it's really interesting. You can take some of those basic weapons like the Buster Sword and use it a lot longer because you can upgrade it as you go and get more materia slots as you go. It's still not going to be the best weapon in the long run, but it's far more versatile than in the original game. You also, in this game, only control one character at a time, realistically. You can switch and give guidance to your other two characters in your party, but you're really only in control of one at a time. Conveniently, though, even when someone's not in your party, you can still upgrade their materia, you can upgrade their weapons, you can move them around. That's so nice. It's so nice to be able to see everyone's items and and equipment and materia all at the same time. It's just so much more convenient. And take it off of them and put it on active characters. Uh Uh-huh. Also... Auto reslotting is great. It asks you, like, do you automatically want to move the material you have on your current weapon to your new weapon? Like, yes. Yes, I do. Thank you. So that's really nice. Those are kind of like convenient things. And I know some of the other Final Fantasy games have had that sense, but I'm really trying to compare this directly to the original more than to the Final Fantasies that are in between as much as possible. Speaking of the materia in your weapons, very cool detail mm-hmm. that as you change the materia in your weapons to different colors, and you run around the world, the materia sitting in your weapons that you see in the game changes to match. Oh, it's so good. It's so cool. I love that they do that. It's such a like nice little touch that just isn't needed, but is needed. It's so nice. You also have summon materias in this game, just like we do, but every character at most gets one summon. That's it. You get one summon. So there's a lot more limited And the way the summons work is they basically become an extra party member that you control, but they use your ATB as opposed to their own. And they only show up in big fights. And they last for like 30 seconds or a minute or so. Yeah, so a little bit different, but they're interesting. The way you earn summons is also different. A couple, like Ifrit, you find, I think, very early on, but most of them you get through this character you meet called Chadley. Chadley? Chadley. Chadley. We call him Chudley, but he's Chadley. He's Chadley. He, in theory, is part of Shinra Research. No, he is. He's part of Shinra Research. He's a little kid. But you find out he's kind of part of the resistance and wants to take down Shinra. And so he's like identified Cloud as someone who can help him do it. And so he has you develop material with him. He basically does a bunch of mini missions with you. But the way you get some of the summons is he's like, let me put you in this virtual world where you have to fight the summon. And once you beat it, you get to keep it. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a virtual battle arena. Yeah, but some of those summons kick your butt. Yeah, no, they are very tough and overleveled versus you a lot Mm -hmm. of the time when you when you first are able to unlock them so you either have to be very talented or very patient and come back later yeah so that's kind of an interesting dynamic chadley's really interesting because again you don't know what his plan is until very near the end of the game he's like we're gonna take down shinra together you're like oh oh okay chadley sure (laughs) he reminds me how his looks look remind me a lot of hope from final fantasy 13 which people will hate Mm, because people hated him which i Mm -hmm. never understood but they hated yeah very true Now that we've gone over the basic mechanics, the basic plots, good lord, there's so much we've already talked about. I just want to get into your thoughts and opinions. For me, playing this game was great. Getting back into this world was amazing. I loved being able to see these characters in this way. Again, I've been into so much of the media of Final Fantasy VII. I did Crisis Core. I did Advent Children. I did all of that. I loved seeing these characters in Kingdom Hearts. Like, I loved 
all of that. So being back in this world was great and seeing this development, I was still shocked by moments. I was still surprised. I still got annoyed at things. Like it still happened, but I really loved seeing this. But it was really fascinating for me to see you playing through this game and not know any of that <laughs> and having to resist telling you of like, you don't see how important this is. <laughs> Yeah, I thought, you know, I, I don't play a lot of modern games. And when I do, I really do like the story driven, you know, first person character type of things. But I also don't love ones that are really twitchy and rely on fast reaction times. And so I was a little concerned about the combat mechanics not being as turn based and having to yeah. be very, you're running in this three dimensional space and doing your rolling and finding cover and having to manage all these different things at once, which is very different than all the other uh, Final Fantasy games that have been played up to this point. Again, I hadn't played them yet, but I'm familiar with the idea of you know turn-based combat uh -huh. and i played super mario rpg and all that but i absolutely fell into this world and loved the characters and the storytelling and the path that it took me through you know i left this game going i still know nothing about sephiroth <laughs> at the end of this game you absolutely know nothing of sephiroth other than He's a badass and he's pretty weird and he's got some weird connection to Cloud and he keeps talking about the future and fate. That's it. And what's so funny about that is you see so much more of Sephiroth in the remake up to this point than you did in the original up to this point. Yeah, but there's nothing to grab hold of that would lead you to what we have learned from FF7, the original. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest things for me, that, and this applies to a lot of games of this type, is whether it's over-leveling or wanting to have combat be balanced or whatever, everyone who feels like they should be a badass ends up not really being. The Turks have such personality and brash mm -hmm. bravado, and then you just mop the floor with them 17 different times and you know you have Roche who comes in and he's the soldier on the motorcycle and he's all the thing mm -hmm. and you just beat him up and it's like repeatedly this thing one of the hardest battles in this game is fighting a house ah uh, that stupid house you just fight a house and that's literally one of the hardest battles in this and everything all of the like super personable badass enemies really aren't that scary in the long run that's always a little annoying to me yeah i think part of that also is strategy of you start learning how to beat them and you get over leveled because you and i are completionists we tend to be over leveled when we hit these things versus people who are just plowing through and so they might be a bit tougher but i agree and that could be a bit frustrating i don't think sephiroth was easy at the end of the game of course there's a final battle with sephiroth which of course didn't happen in the original game because you're not really fighting sephiroth you're fighting an illusion of sephiroth it's uh, ptsd is a, is a nasty nasty bugger and it's not sephiroth but he's possessed one of the bodies and stuff it's it's a whole thing. I, I agree that that's part of it. To me, I was like, they so oversaturated Sephiroth this early in the game because they knew that they couldn't have a Final Fantasy VII game without him, but he's just not meant to be this early in the game. And so they just forced him in, which I kind of actually was bothered by. As much as I love Sephiroth, I mean, apparently I'm notoriously known for this now of being uh, favoring the villains and Sephi boy is Sephi boy, but he wasn't meant to be as prominent in this game 
as he was, but I feel like they felt like they couldn't not have him constantly in this game. And I don't know, that to me took away from the mystique of Sephiroth to a certain extent. For me, it's a lot like watching the prequels the first time and being like, wow, I'm not scared of Darth Vader the way I had been originally because you've you've softened him. And while it's not softening Sephiroth in this game, it's overexposure to him. It's We've beaten him, even if it's just a image of him, we've now beaten him multiple times in this game already. It just, it feels like it takes away some of that impact. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that there was still a lot of characters that I, I connect with. Like Barrett is really, really annoying at first because yeah. he is just a an absolute jerk to Cloud. Hates him, hates the idea of him because he's not a true believer. And so there's a lot of snarking back and forth between them, which is fun. But you still get little moments of Barrett singing the victory song is beautiful. You mm-hmm. get this sort of like deep bass voice. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yuffie does as well, actually, in Integrate, which is fun. And then you also get to play as Barrett for a little while. And being Barrett, blowing up entire rooms of boxes with your gun is the most cathartic thing. Because yeah. you just literally walk around just destroying this yeah. room to, to recover like MP and things like that. It's, it's so good. That's one thing of... This game actually, to me, weakened Tifa's character a little bit, which annoyed me. Because she's way more whiny in this game than I wanted her to be. She needs some dang self-confidence. Every time you switch (sighs) to her, all of her internal dialogue is... Oh, I guess I can do it. I just got to work harder. I'm almost there. And we that's can... what oh, killed me. Thanks, like, Cloud. <laughs> I don't think that was necessary. Like, they added this weakness that was never there. Like, no, she's a badass. She wrecks faces I when know. you're using her. And so it's like, what are you doing, Tiffa? It's possible that men wrote this game. Ha. So that was a little annoying with her, but, you know, it is what it is. And because, like, even at the end of the game, Because they are clearly canned lines of when you're going through your party members. And you shift from Cloud to Tifa and he'll be like, let me show you how it's done or something like that. And it's like, yeah, just felt unnecessary. But I mean, overall, like I just still love the development of the characters. I loved how much more we got to know them and meet them and understand them and see them as more than one dimensional. Like that was nice. There are definitely times where the full voice acting changes a character, maybe in the wrong way. Every time Cloud casts a fire spell on someone, he just goes burn as he casts it. And I'm like, that is so much more psychopathic now. That's like he's taking such joy out of immolating these these people. That's one thing this game does where they acknowledge more that we're just fully murderizing a lot of Shinra soldiers and Barrett's just more than anyone else. Barrett's just okay with it. And we also get to see some of these soldiers like questioning their orders and not being sure and being browbeaten into it and showing that they aren't like these evil monsters. They're just people where this is what they're doing and more than that because again now that you know the background of you know cloud was one of these just basic Mm -hmm. soldiers there's multiple points in the game where people recognize cloud and they're like hey buddy and you're like oh these are his old buddies like he is just fully being okay with not killing i don't think they kill anyone he knows directly that they acknowledge but being okay with it and and barrett's just like it's all for the cause and you're like that's dark It, it, it paints everyone again in a gray light it's not yeah. black and white. It's very mm-hmm. gray, which is kind of beautiful. Like, it should be. It shouldn't be clean and easy. Yeah. Also, the the more real-time combat is really interesting, but also so frustrating because it's not as real-time as I want it to be. 
you get your ATB meter up and you cast heal on someone and it takes like two it seconds does. before you cast. And then when you cast it, you, you can actually see the magic go over to mm -hmm. them. If they die in between, Tough you just wasted it, which on the hard mode, even worse. Yeah. But it's like you're already waiting for the ATB. And then you also have to wait for the spell to cast and to impact. Like, it just feels like it was punitive without needing to be. Yeah, for sure sometimes. And then I, I was laughing because when I was playing through the remake on the stream, Chris was laughing at me. He's like, I love how we could see how often you're hitting, you're mashing X. Cause you could... <laughs> it, it flashes true. the it button flashing graphic. flashing the attack button. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm just like, hit, 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 hit. Because yeah. that's how you're going to do it sometimes. But that shows a little bit different approach to it it didn't feel as methodical because of that it was sometimes much more frantic mm -hmm. which is both good and bad but i could see why yeah but it was just funny chris was just laughing at me like i could just see you're hitting x like a million times like yes yes i am however one of the, the best lines now with the context of the first episode that we did here was barrett saying i tell you what the rot runs deep in this damn pizza Ah, I died. You said in the damn pizza. And I was like, lol, all the pizza jokes. But that was again, in the remake, we got to see the artificial suns that they use mm -hmm. for the lower plate. And we turn them off. And turn them which off. Which is dark. Again, and Barrett's just like, well, Literally. they're going to lose it anyway. Thank you. And it's just like, oh, okay, Barrett, you really just don't care about other people sometimes. No, no, you see, because it's dark because you turned off oh, the sun. God, and so that made it. it so it's actually dark now. But, like, it is it is interesting. They have, like, you see, again, Midgar, you see so much more of Midgar in such a good way in these games. And I really love it. You got to see Yuffie explore Midgar, which was interesting, and meet one of her fellow Wutaians, Wutai, people Wutanatites. from Wutai. Yeah. And then he dies. Spoilers. But, you know, it's, it's I love the the world they built. I love that in the in Integrade, one of the mini games that popped up was Fort Condor, but it's a board game. Mm -hmm. And I was like, it's Fort Condor, but a board game. This is fun. And I just love that. It reminded me a lot of um, Horizon Zero Dawn had a board game like that. Mm -hmm. And so that's what it reminded me. But I was just like, this is amazing. I approve. The uh, There's a great darts mini game in the main game. Oh, I was so bad at that too. So much fun. You know, I think that with this game, I loved a lot of it, but the final chapter was probably my least favorite thing when suddenly we're in this like whole different nether world fighting these yeah. amorphous Whisper. shades and the idea of Sephiroth and like all this stuff. Like it was such a, we took a hard left at Albuquerque and somehow ended up in this final battle that was not at all alluded to for the entire game at the very end they just drop here's the big bad go fight yeah it felt very forced to me because there isn't yeah. anything like that in the original game at that point in the story there isn't the final battle like that and the fact that like i get that they wanted to be like look you're breaking fate but why why is that the moment we break fate why isn't it at a different point why isn't it when eris dies we break fate and bring her back. Why is it just when we're leaving Midgar? It just felt... You act like you want to bring Aerith back. Ugh. This one is fine. I'm fine with this version. <laughs> but it's more of like, it felt like, it felt very forced of, we want to show that we're doing things differently in the future games, so we have to put it at the end of the first game, even if plot-wise, it just doesn't track to me. It just didn't feel right. Yep. But I think we've talked a lot, and this is supposed to be one of our shorter episodes. We're not really accomplishing that well. My bad. All Kyle's fault. So let's let's get into it. Kyle, what score do you give the remake of Final Fantasy VII? I was on the 
fence, I think I'm going to end up on an eight and a half. I think there was a lot about this game that was absolutely fantastic. It drew me in. I played through, like I said, every single part of this game, every sub-trophy and side quest that there is other than the hard mode stuff. Loved all of it. But the ending was pretty weak. Yeah. Sephiroth meant nothing to me at the end, even though he was one of the big bads. Like It just it didn't come together in the end to really sell itself as something that i wanted to know what was next it almost felt like i completed the storyline in like i don't i I will i will play the next one but i don't have a burning desire to because i don't feel like there's a bunch of loose ends that i need to close out i feel like i've finished the world basically interesting that's fair how about you I have to also give it an eight and a half. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed playing it. I think there were a lot of nostalgic elements that I really enjoyed. I love the world they build. I love getting to know some of the world that I didn't get the chance to in the original game. But yeah, I had a lot of problems with some of the changes they made. Ironically enough, I had problems with the way they handle certain things. Like the whispers were weird to me and forced to me. There were just parts of it I just felt like they they tried to force later elements of the game earlier so that they could be like, lol, we did it. And it was just like, okay, like, well, then maybe you shouldn't have done it this way and broken it into three games. Maybe we should give it an 8.7 so we can match Metacritic score. Don't do that. Chris will kill you. <laughs> but yeah, so eight and a half. I, I enjoyed it. I really did, but I think there could have been better. I think there could have been more. And I will definitely play the follow-ups. I am apprehensive still where they're going with it. Is Zach alive? And does that mean that Zach and Eris are going to get back together or is this going to be even more complicated? All of the names. So with that, I think we need to wrap up this episode. Really thank you to everyone for joining us on this different kind of journey talking about a modern game instead of a retro game. Most importantly, thank you to the producers. (laughs) Absolutely. We couldn't do this without them. Stop it. (laughs) No, seriously, thank you to everyone who listens and joining us on our streams. We really love seeing you out there. We love chatting with you. Thank you for joining us on social media. It's always great chatting with you guys. You can find us at GWGW Show on Twitch, on Instagram, on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We are games you grew up with. I will try to put together some sort of mini analysis of the starting segments of both the original game and the remake. Don't know when that'll happen, but it should be somewhat soon. What's our next episode? It's Mighty Morphin Power Rangers for the SNES. Look forward to that. Chris will be back. It'll be back to the traditional format. But I really appreciate everyone joining us for this little side adventure as I just needed to talk about Final Fantasy VII some more. And I dragged Producer Kyle along with me. So thank you for joining me, Producer Kyle. It's Morphin Time. Once again, as always, thank you, everyone. Talk to us. Join us. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Say goodbye, Producer Kyle. Goodbye, Chris. Bye, everyone. Oh, Cloud, there's still so much to be done. Speaking of hair, by the way, the amount of hairspray Cloud must use to get those spikes. So much hair.